Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 32 all the way into Acts chapter 5, verse 11. So hear the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, it is good for your people to come together once again to worship you. And we pray that you would help us in this hour to stay focused, that you would give us the ability to pay very close attention to your word. Please use your word and your people to change our hearts, that our lives might be more in line with your will. And we pray for those among us who don't know you. Pray that you would open their hearts tonight, that they might be born again. And we ask all this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. We continue tonight in our series in the book of Acts. Just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Uh, Jesus has died. Uh, Jesus has risen again. And at the very beginning of the book, he ascends into heaven. And he sends down the Holy Spirit to fill his disciples that they might be his witnesses. And that starts in a spectacular way at Pentecost. Peter's preaching. 3,000 people get saved. And so the first church is thus established. Right, primarily from those converts. But it wasn't long before the church would meet opposition from the outside, a persecution. 
Because when Peter and John heal a lame man and they start preaching to the crowds, well, the Jewish leaders don't like it one bit. And so they arrest them and they warn them to stop preaching about Jesus. But Peter and John are like, we can't help it. We cannot but speak of that which we have seen and heard. And really, the rest of the book of Acts is going to be characterized by persecution and opposition. As a matter of fact, the very next story that happens in the second half of chapter 5 is about the apostles getting arrested. But here, in our verses this evening, Luke, the author, he's going to take a little break from the outside issues that the church was facing. And he's going to give us a glimpse into some of the inside issues that the church was facing. Which brings us to our story for tonight. We're going to go through this narrative using uh, three points that I think capture the flow of the story. Uh, Point number one is generosity. Point number two is hypocrisy. And point number three is fear. Generosity, hypocrisy, and fear. And so we'll start with point number one, generosity. Chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Look at 32. Now the full number of those who believed. Remember the book of Acts begins with 120 disciples. And then that number booms on Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. Then chapter 4, verse 4 says that even more people believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so we'll do a little bit of math here. You take the men, you add the women, you add some children. You might very well have over 10,000 people at this point. But these aren't just 10,000 people who have gathered together with the same colors of their favorite basketball team. Uh, There, look at verse 32 again. Those who believed. Those who believed the gospel. Uh, Those who placed their full trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, those to whom God had graciously granted eternal life. And look at what Luke says about them. They're of one heart and soul. Uh, They were so closely knit together in heart and soul by their common belief, by their common love for the Lord. Or we could put it this way, it was a necessary consequence of their love for the Lord that they loved one another. That's just what happens when God's people love him with all their heart and soul, right? The greatest commandment of the law. Well, they necessarily become one heart and soul with each other. One of the tangible ways in which that love and unity manifested itself in this early church was in how they cared for one another's needs. Remember that many of the believers in this early church, they were not from Jerusalem. Uh, They were from Cappadocia or Pontus or Asia, right? And they they got saved at Pentecost in Jerusalem while they're on a pilgrimage. And uh, they can't go home because there's no church back home. If you want to worship and you want to be with the people of God and you want to hear the apostles teaching and preaching, you've got to stay in Jerusalem. And so those believers from all over obviously had material needs. But then you also had the believers who were from Jerusalem, who as a result of their new profession of faith, as a result of their baptism, well, they were in all likelihood de-synagogued, right? They were expelled from the Jewish community. 
which means that they were cut off from family and fired from their jobs. And so many of those believers, they would have been in need also. But that wasn't really a problem for this early church because, look at verse 32 again, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Does that mean that they were establishing some kind of like utopian commune in the woods somewhere? That the early Christians were communists with no private property? No, we're going to see later in this very story that private property is still very much a thing. And then there's that story in Acts chapter 12. Remember Peter busts out of prison and he goes to John Mark's mother's house. You know what that implies? That John Mark's mother owned a house. And so the statement is not literal. Right? The statement is an expression that captures the mentality of the people. Right? They were joyfully willing to sell anything in order to meet the practical needs of their brothers and their sisters. And again, this is not communism. Right? There, there's no coercion here. And it's not that the church is selling people's land and houses for them. It's that they themselves were individually doing it as they felt led. Look at verse 34. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. By the way, that worked out quite nicely for them because in AD 70, the Jerusalem real estate market would crash. And so they would bring these proceeds to the apostles. Uh, They would meet whatever practical needs existed. And as a result, there was not a needy person among them. And so the newly saved guy who owned some land in Jerusalem, well, he gladly sold it so that the newly saved guy who was originally from Cappadocia could have his needs met. Remember, they were of one heart and soul. They were attached to one another so strongly that their attachments to the things of this world, their lands and their houses, necessarily became weaker as a result. Now look back at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And at first glance, that verse kind of seems out of place. Because the rest of the paragraph is all about the church meeting one another's needs. Like, why mention the apostles and their preaching? Well, I can't read Luke's mind here, but it seems to me that Luke tells us this to show us that the two key ingredients to the early church were the apostles' faithful preaching and the entire body's love for one another. And we can see how Luke twice, in this one verse, twice he uses the word great. Megali in Greek. Right? And so think mega. It was with great power, with mega power, that the apostles were preaching the resurrected Christ. And it was with great grace, mega grace, upon them all, upon all the people, that they were freed from their love of money, their love of possessions, to be able to love one another sacrificially in this way. Both required God's great, mega working among his people. So point number one, generosity. We see how the early church, how they freely sold 
their possessions and gave to meet one another's needs. But let's not forget that it was all of God's grace. Sometimes we as believers have this tendency to uh, kind of confine God's grace to our salvation. And yes, our salvation is all of grace. Our salvation is a free gift from God that none of us earns, none of us deserves, none of us merits in any way. Sola gratia, right? By grace alone. But, believer, we need to remember that the same grace of God that saves us also works to sanctify us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Right? That's Titus chapter 2. And the ability to be generous, to hold on to the things of this world loosely, well, that's no exception. Great grace was upon them all. So brothers and sisters, as we think about our own generosity, we'll remember that sacrificial New Testament giving, uh, it doesn't begin with a spreadsheet or, or some percentages as if it were just another tax on our income. Right? Sacrificial New Testament giving begins with God's grace. God's grace that destines us for heaven so that this world is no longer our home. We're just pilgrims. We're passing through a foreign land. And so our treasures are not stored up here, but are stored in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And it's God's grace that allows us to look at our stuff and see it's just a stewardship of God's resources. And so if there's a greater need in the church, if there's a greater need in the kingdom of God than me just holding on to it, well, I'm just giving it back to God. Right? That freedom from materialism, that freedom from loving the things of this world, that too is a result of God's great grace. Like Paul says in a section of 2 Corinthians about giving, for you know the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's that understanding of God's grace, and that enabling by God's grace. Well, that's going to produce more sacrificial, generous giving in God's people than any number of rules or percentages or formulas. The early church was, by God's grace, absurdly generous. And then Luke gives us one particular example. Look at verse 36. Thus, Joseph. Like, here's the mentality of the whole church. They're one heart and soul, and here's just one example of that mentality. Thus, Joseph. And so this guy, Joseph, he sells a field that belongs to him, whether it's back home at Cyprus or it's in Jerusalem, we don't know. But he does what many others in the congregation have also done. He sells his land and he gives the proceeds to the apostles. But this Joseph, 
Well, he's not just any member of the congregation. He is one who is especially noted for his encouragement of others. And so his selling of his field is just one illustration of that. And he's so outstanding in his encouraging spirit that the apostles recognize it. And so they give him the nickname Barnabas, right? son of encouragement. Here is a man who is characterized by encouragement. Like when we think of Barnabas, we think of his encouragement. And if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll know that God uses that giftedness to encourage and build up his church. Take a look at these verses in Acts 11, verses 22 through 24. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted, he encouraged, the son of encouragement. He encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's the kind of guy he was. As first evidenced in this book by his desire to sell his land to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters. Point number one, generosity. The church was one heart and soul and that reflected in their giving and caring for one another. And one shining example of that was Barnabas. Now, if you were to stop Right here. Like if the book of Acts ended right here, you would think that this was like a perfect church that they could do no wrong. Because everything seems to be going so well. Which brings us to point number two. Hypocrisy. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And so you'll notice that we crossed over into chapter 5. This has to be uh, one of the more unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible. Remember that chapter breaks uh, were not inspired. They were added some, I don't know, 11 centuries after the New Testament was completed. So even an elementary school student could tell you, you can't just start a story with the word but. But a man named Ananias Clearly, this is a continuation of what just happened, what just transpired in chapter 4. And here's why that's important. Because everything that we just talked about in point number one, right, generosity, that sets up what's about to happen in point number two, hypocrisy. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart You've not lied to man, but to God. Now, one thing we should be very clear about up front is that the issue, the sin in this story, is not the amount that Ananias gave. Uh, Peter points out that he was completely free to not sell the land at all. You want to keep the land? Keep the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And then once he sold it, He was completely free to give whatever amount from the sale that he wanted. 
whatever he wanted. This wasn't like a sales tax that he was obligated to pay. It was supposed to be a free will offering from the heart. After it was sold, was it not? Were the proceeds not at your disposal to do whatever you wanted with them? So the problem is not in the amount that he gives. The problem is that he lies. That he says he's giving 100% of the proceeds, when in reality, he's keeping back a portion for himself. Uh, Here you go, Peter. Uh, I just sold my land, and here's every last dollar. That's the sin. It's the lying. But there's an even deeper issue here with Ananias. Like, what is it that causes him to lie? Well, sometimes it's a fear of getting caught that causes us to lie. It's like, wait the last piece of cake. Uh, Paxton, I don't know. But here, it's not a fear of getting caught. Because again, Ananias was free to give whatever he wanted. Ananias lies here because of a desire for glory and honor. Like the glory and the honor that was just given to Barnabas a few verses earlier. And we see that contrast between Barnabas and Ananias in the specific language that Luke uses. And so look again at verse 37. What does Barnabas do? He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So he sold, brought, laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, what does Ananias do? Look at verse 1. Ignore the unhelpful chapter break, right? It's the very next verse. What does Ananias do? Ananias sold a piece of property. He brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so both of them sold property, brought money, and laid money at the apostles' feet. Luke is drawing our attention to the fact that Ananias did what he did Because he saw the attention, the commendation, the praise that Barnabas was getting. The apostles called him son of encouragement. That's that's about as awesome as human recognition gets, right? The apostles gave him a nickname. And so Ananias wants some of this prestige for himself. He wants the apostles, he wants the church to think of him as generous and godly and giving as generous and godly and giving as they saw Barnabas to be. What are they going to think if they see Barnabas bring 100% of his proceeds, but I only bring 50%? And so in his pursuit of the praise of man, what does Ananias do? He lies. To be more specific, he puts on the mask of the hypocrite. He lies to make himself look like something that he's not. And so Ananias lies to make himself look more generous than he's actually willing to be in the eyes of the church. Ananias is a hypocrite. And here's the sad part of all of this. It's that it was so unnecessary. Like, just suppose... Ananias had brought half of the proceeds to the apostles' feet, and he was just honest about what he brought. 
Because he really needs the other 50% uh, to pay for groceries or diapers or the kids' Christmas presents or whatever it is. Well, that's wonderful. That is God-honoring giving. Because it was never about the amount. Uh, The widow put in her two mites. And what does Jesus say? This poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, maybe Ananias wouldn't have gotten the same praise and recognition from his peers. But much more important than that, God would have seen his heart. And so this story is so tragic, not just because of what will happen, but because none of this had to happen. So here's Ananias bringing his money to Peter, and he's probably thinking. No, he's definitely thinking. Well, no one's going to find out. But you see, you just can't mess with the apostles like that. Because Peter, uh, we don't know how he knows, but he knows. He's got some revelation from God, right? It's not like he can just look it up on Street Easy or something like that. He's got some revelation from God. He immediately sees right through the charade Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Peter lets us in there on uh, spiritual reality that Satan is at work here. Which shouldn't really surprise us or strike us as odd because uh, Satan hates nothing more than the church thriving and spreading the gospel, taking back captives, rescuing people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so the powers of darkness have been working from the outside of the church, for sure. We've already seen that in the persecution. But now here they work from the inside, from within the body. That's exactly what happens here. But you'll notice that just because Satan is at work, that doesn't somehow absolve Ananias of his responsibility. Because right after Peter asks, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Look, what else he asks, verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this evil in your heart? Not like Satan took control of him and like forced him to lie. No, it's that Ananias, in the depths of his heart, he contrives this lie. He schemes this lie. He thinks about the glory that would come his way as a result of this lie, and he willingly and he voluntarily does it. The devil made me do it. No, Ananias, you contrived this deed in your own heart. But notice also what Peter's accusation here is. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later on, you have not lied to men, but to God. And so we clearly see the deity of the Holy Spirit, but that's not the point here. The point is that the lie wasn't just to Peter. It wasn't just to the apostles. It wasn't just to the church. The lie was against the Holy Spirit. The lie, primarily, first and foremost, most importantly, was against the one behind everything that the church was doing. Remember the emphasis in this book on the work of the Holy Spirit in establishing the church. And so the lie is ultimately against none other than the Holy Spirit. Similar to what David says in Psalm 51. Remember after he sins with Bathsheba. 
It's like, okay, who did David sin against? Well, he sinned against Bathsheba, and he sinned against Uriah, and he sinned against Joab, and he sinned against all of Israel. Like, it's hard to think of a person whom David did not sin against. But what does he say? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so we see that there is no such thing as a victimless sin. Because maybe you read the story and you say, well, yeah, Ananias lied, but it's not like anybody was hurt. Well, that's kind of true. Until you realize that all sin is ultimately against God. He is ultimately the offended party in every sin that we commit. You have not lied to man, but to God. And as a consequence, look at verses 5 and 6, Ananias, boom, drops dead. He fell down and breathed his last. There's no need to come up with medical rationalizations here, like, Well, he was in such shock that he was discovered that he immediately suffered a heart attack. Uh, No, we're supposed to see this as a clear act of God. A a swift, immediate, decisive, direct judgment from God. Uh, Something along the lines of a Nadab and Abihu, or an Uzzah, or, or a Korah. So don't let anybody ever tell you Well, only the God of the Old Testament judges sin. I, the Lord, do not change. You can switch testaments, but God is still just as holy, just as powerful, and he still hates sin just as much as Ananias found out the hard way. We should be clear about one thing here. God is a merciful and patient God. And so his normal course of action, if we can call it that, is one of forbearance. Like if he struck down all people as soon as they sinned, like all people as soon as they did something hypocritical, like like we humans would not be around very long. Like God does judge all sin eventually because it is appointed unto man once to die and after that comes judgment. But immediate judgments like this It's relatively rare. But what we do see in these swift, immediate, direct judgments, Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah, Korah, Ananias, what we see is that God cares deeply for his own glory. The church, the assembly of God's redeemed people, the church is a display of God's glory. There is representatives here on earth And so this sin within the church, this sin against the church, again, is primarily a sin against God's glory. The purity of the early church is at stake. And so God acts in a swift and spectacular and powerful way. And so the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So we fast forward about three hours. And here's Sapphira. She's got no idea that her husband's dead. You say, well, where, is she, where has she been? I don't know. Uh, maybe she was spending the money. Maybe she was hiding the money. Maybe she just took a nap. I, we don't know. But here she is, rolling in. And she's expecting some kind of commendation. 
Sapphira, you and your husband are so generous. Thank you so much for selling your land and donating all of it. Forget Barnabas. You guys, you guys are the best. But verse 8, Peter says, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yes, for so much. That is tragic. Peter gives her a clear opportunity to confess her sin. A clear opportunity to come clean. A clear opportunity to repent. And what does she do? She doubles down in her stubbornness. And she sticks to her story. Because look at how specific Peter is. It's not like, hey, Sapphira, how's it going? I'm going to kind of see if her conscience grips her and makes her confess. No, he asks a very specific question. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Like, is it really true? But she continues in her lie. So Peter responds, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? The same guys who buried your husband, well, they're here. They're going to take you as well. And so she dies as well. Now implied in Peter's words is that Sapphira is much more than an innocent bystander. You have agreed together to do this. And that is is a sad contrast to what we saw earlier, isn't it? Because you remember how the church was of one heart and soul in their unity. Well, here we have Ananias and Sapphira of one heart and soul to do this evil. So she too is struck dead. Ananias and Sapphira, two liars, two hypocrites, two dead bodies carried out and buried some of you are probably wondering at this point, were they Christians? Were Ananias and Sapphira believers? Well, there's arguments that can go both ways. Personally, I tend to think that they were Christians. But regardless of what we think, that really doesn't matter because clearly the church in Acts thought that they were Christians. Otherwise, they would not have been part of the church. But either way, whether they're Christians or not. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If nothing else, that's the takeaway. Point number two, hypocrisy. So point number one, generosity. Point number two, hypocrisy. That brings us to point number three, fear. What is the result of everything that just happened here with Ananias and Sapphira? Uh, What was the key takeaway for the church? It was great fear. Fabas megas. And we actually see that twice in our passage. Like Luke is hammering this home. We should pay close attention. Look at verse 5. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's the point of the story. That the swift and sudden judgment of God against hypocrisy in his church caused great fear. Can you imagine being a member of this early church? If you had even an inkling of a hint of a smidgen of a temptation to act hypocritically, 
in front of the church, right, to lie to gain the accolades of your peers? Well, you would immediately recall what just happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and you'd repent in great fear of even entertaining the thought. Point number three, fear. Great fear came upon them all. So now we need to ask a question. What's this story got to do with us? Uh, This narrative, it's a unique event in church history in which God acts in a very special and specific way to preserve the purity of his early church. So, So what do we take away? Well, yes, this judgment is unique, the primary tool God's given his church to address sin and maintain holiness and purity in the body is not instantaneous death. It's church discipline. But I think the application for us is to realize that even though uh, this direct cause and effect, like hypocrisy, results in death connection, like even though that was unique, the principles behind it that God knows our hearts, and that God hates hypocrisy. Well, they're timeless truths that still very much apply to us. Friends, if we believe what the Bible says, that God is our ultimate judge, that God sees our hearts, that all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account— well, we quickly see how ridiculous our hypocrisy is. Like when we, in essence, lie to those around us and put on a show for their respect and their commendation, well, are we assuming that God doesn't know or that God doesn't care? The Bible, and this story in particular, clearly refutes both. God very much knows And God very much cares. So perhaps you've been doing church for any number of years. You've identified as a Christian for decades. Your family and your friends and your coworkers all think that you are a Christian. But then you look at your own life and you know that there's been no change. You live and you think and you speak just like the rest of the world. But you got to put on a show. Or maybe you see a Barnabas type and you see the commendation and the praise that he's getting. You say, well, I've got to have that for myself. And so regardless of where you know your heart really is with God, well, you've got to put on that mask for people. Well, friend, I hope you realize just how ridiculous that is. Because at the end of the day, no man is going to be your judge. When you stand before God to be judged, he's going to see right through that facade. He's going to judge your heart rightly and in justice. Not just for all the sin that you've committed against him, but particularly for the sin of hypocrisy which you put on in the church in order to deceive his people. 
So friend, if that in any way describes you, I call you to repent today. I call you to repent of your sin, to take off that mask of hypocrisy and come to Christ. To take that sin and and all of your sin and place your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. Friends, he is a a merciful Savior who stands to save the biggest hypocrites who come to him in true repentance. But brothers and sisters, remember, it's not just the unbelievers who need to fear God with regards to hypocrisy because look again at verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church. Believers. More than anyone, it was God's people who feared as a result of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And so this application is not just for unbelievers who are pretending to be Christians. Although it is for unbelievers who are pretending to be Christians. It's also for Christians who are pretending to be better Christians than they really are. And so this isn't an immediate and obvious application as much as it requires a bit of searching in your own heart. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves, are there areas in our walks in which we gladly put on a mask and project ourselves to be something that we're not in order to seek the approval of men? Where we've given into this very strong temptation to be an Ananias or a Sapphira, where our desire to be seen in a certain way in the eyes of our brothers and sisters is so much more important to us than the truth that God himself actually sees in us. But, I'll close with this. This story serves us not just as a warning to the Ananiases and the Sapphires in the room, though it is a warning to the Ananiases and the Sapphires among us, I think it also serves us as a warning to those of us who would much prefer to associate ourselves with Barnabas than Ananias. I wouldn't do it. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm honest before the Lord. I'm trying to be like Barnabas. Well, our friend Barnabas is referred to in several other places in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Acts. But there's one other story involving Barnabas outside of the book of Acts. It's actually in the book of Galatians. Paul writes about how uh, Peter goes to Antioch, and then Paul discovers that, well, Peter, he would normally eat with the Gentiles, but when certain people were there, the Judaizers, well, Peter would draw back because he feared them. Peter feared what men would think. Here's where it ties together for us. Look at Galatians 2.13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that, oh, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. Isn't that interesting? In the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who moved Luke 
to write the story in Acts chapter 4 about Barnabas in order to contrast him with Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy. Well, that's the same Holy Spirit who later moves Paul to write about how even Barnabas was led astray by hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, the same Barnabas who sold his land in Acts chapter 4, not for the eyes of men, but for the Lord, for the glory of God. Oh, he's so different from those hypocrites, Ananias and Sapphira. Well, even Barnabas is led astray in Galatians 2. Barnabas, uh, by any account, he's a man who loved the Lord. He's a true servant of God. He's a great Christian. He's a man of faith. Even Barnabas fell into the snare of hypocrisy. And so, brothers and sisters, the story of Ananias and Sapphira hopefully has served us as a stark warning for all of us of the dangers of hypocrisy, especially in God's church. But perhaps it's the example of Barnabas that strikes some of us most directly. Those of us who like to think of ourselves as much more like Barnabas than Ananias. Well, sin is crouching at our door as well. So like Paul says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. May God give us all grace to live quorum Deo, to live before the face of God. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded once again of our need for your grace. We pray that your grace would save those in this room who do not know you, even those who have been putting on a mask for many years or decades, pretending to be a Christian when they are not. Father, we pray that today would be the day that they would come to know you. Father, we pray for those of us who are your people. We pray that we would indeed live before your face. Would help us to hate this sin of hypocrisy that we might, by grace and by the working of the Holy Spirit, put it to death. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.